Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's uh, weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. Um, my name is Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Um, we've got a treat tonight. Uh, we're speaking with Andrew Iden, who works on the staff of Representative John Lewis, but more importantly is uh, Representative Lewis's co-author, for the New York Times best-selling graphic biography, March Book One, which not only tells the, the really the hero, his, heroic story of uh, Representative John Lewis's life and, and involvement um, with the civil rights movement, but really really tells the whole story of the civil rights movement through his life. And, but uh, one of the things that um, uh, I'm really anxious to talk with Andrew about is the the role of uh, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story in historic comic books book that really outlines not only that the historic Montgomery um, bus boycott, uh, but actually the a comic book that lays out the principles of nonviolent civil civil disobedience that were the bedrock of the civil rights movement and have gone on really to change the whole world. Um, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for um, for talking with us about this uh, historic comic book. Well, thank you for having me, Calvin. It's great to be with you. Great. So, um, look, why don't you, why don't we get right to it? Um, uh, this comic book was actually turned into be in- instrumental uh, in uh, getting you to, to write uh, to, to work with uh, um, Representative Lewis to do his biography as a as a graphic novel. Um, so, tell us a little bit about how you learned about it and how it, this figures in the whole narrative. Well, I first heard about it in 2008 when I was working on the congressman's campaign and it was coming to an end and we started talking about what we were going to do after. And I said I was going to a comic convention and everybody laughed and chuckled. And the congressman said, don't laugh. There was a comic book during the movement and it was incredibly influential. And that was the first time I heard of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. And so I started, you know, you just go and you Google it, right? And it's right. available mm-hmm. online. You can you can see like piece parts here and there where it's been scanned and, and uh you know, you can see it on the Digital Comics Museum and things like that. And um I I mean I was captivated by this, you know, that there there was a comic book and then I asked more about it and it turns out it had helped inspire some of the earliest sit ins. Mm-hmm. Um and so I only sort of knew about it in that general framework and, and it just seemed you know, if if there was a comic book published in the 50s at a, at a time, you know, just right after the comic book hearings had devastated the yeah. industry when comics in some sense were almost radioactive to the public conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- why couldn't we do that again today, uh, especially at a time when the lessons of the civil rights movement are so important and there's so many things that we could use to apply uh, to, to situations we face today? Um, and so many people, it seems like, really don't remember those lessons. Um, no, I, I and could. so, you know, I went on to, to look up and, and read more. And then I was in grad school also uh, at night. Um, and it, it was uh, an opportunity uh, to, to, to write your thesis about something that you were really passionate about. And mm-hmm. there was few things I could imagine that I wanted to know more about uh, than this comic book. Mm-hmm. Hey, Andrew. Um, and so, you know, you can imagine I was at Georgetown and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm pretty sure I was the first person ever to ask to write a thesis in a public policy course uh-huh. about the influence of comics, uh, hey. a particular comic. Hey, Andrew, um, let but, me, let me interrupt you. But, well, can, can, before you go on, can you tell us a little bit about your own background as a comics fan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been a comics fan since I was a little kid. You know, I was like nine or 10 years old when I read my first one. 
It was Uncanny X-Men 317, <laughs> right? <With> Banshee <laughs> on the cover and the lenticular <laughs> thing from the Phalanx Covenant storyline. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, I grew up going, like, I went to Dragon Con for the first time when I was, like, 13 years old. Yeah. That's in Atlanta, um, actually, where you're from, right? And I've been right? going to shows ever since, and I just love reading comics. Mm-hmm. Great. And you're from Atlanta, right? Born and raised, yes, uh-huh. sir. Great. Um, so you're, 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 you're studying for a graduate degree at, uh, at Georgetown University in public policy? Yes, sir. And you propose to do your thesis on a little known comic book, but a, you know, but obviously a revolutionary comic book from the 1950s. And, um, you convinced your advisors to, that, that they should do this. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, I think one of the opportunities when you write a thesis is to to tell a story that nobody's told before. Mm-hmm. And I was really sort of surprised that nobody had told this story. Um, and, you know, it was it was a little bit of, of uh, creativity mm-hmm. to get them to, to make the connection between, you know, a comic book teaching a lesson and then actually having a real impact on the social fabric of America. Mm-hmm. And... It took, you know, I think there was a few awkward meetings at first, and and I, I, you know, I just wouldn't give up on the idea, um, uh-huh. because the history of it is almost as interesting as the comic book existing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it came about at a time, like I said, um, just after the comic book hearings, um, where you know comics really weren't treated with the respect that they get today, um, albeit we have a distance yet to go, um, and and. It was really interesting to me once I got into it that some of the folks who are involved in the creation of this are folks we know today as major civil rights leaders, and even Dr. King helped edit it. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. What is the Fellowship um, of Reconciliation? They are a pacifist organization based in Nyack, New York, that was incredibly influential on the early days of the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of their uh, field secretaries was a guy named the Rev- was Reverend Glenn Smiley, mm-hmm. um, who uh, students of the Montgomery bus boycotts will recognize as one of the uh, uh, folks who helped Dr. King really um, use nonviolence and and uh, organize the bus boycotts. And mm-hmm. in fact, he was the first uh, white person to sit next to a black person, specifically Dr. King, mm-hmm. on the Montgomery. Uh, a public bus system and the fellowship themselves were an organization that was trying to bring attention to nonviolence and and social justice. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the easiest uh, correlation would be that, you know, something like the the social gospel, right? Mm -hmm, So they they do have a a somewhat religious focus, but primarily um, they're, they've been around for quite a while and um, even Baird Rustin, mm-hmm. uh, Baird Rustin was uh, uh, worked for them at one point um, in the in the fifties, and and today they're actually still around. They're still around because they were essentially the publisher of this comic book, right? Well, it was the director of publications for them who was the one who sort of carried the ball. Oh yeah, um, who was a guy named Alfred, Alfred Hassler. Hassler, and there was another guy, Benton. Was it Resnick? Resnick, exactly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. now he was actually a comic book guy. Uh-huh. He came from uh, a, organ- a, a company called Toby Press, mm-hmm. which was run by Elliot Kaplan, who was Al Cap's brother. 
Oh, this is right? okay. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Now we're getting so, interested because I'm uh, very interested Toby in Press, how this was uh, made and who made it. Sorry, I'm very interested in how this comic book was made and who actually produced it. Well, this is sort of this was my fascination too, right? Like, there's no there's no signature in there. Nobody right. knows who the artist is. Uh, nobody really knew who the writer was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it says produced by the Fellowship, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it maybe it was because it would have been dangerous to have your name on it at mm-hmm. the time. Um, but what happened was. Uh, Put this in some historic context, right? So sure. the hearings happened and the anti-comic book fervor sort of hit a high water mark uh, about 54, 55, right? Um, Elliot Kaplan was actually the first chairman of the group that met uh, to deal with the response uh, to the backlash mm-hmm. um, that ultimately went on to uh, create the comics code. Mm-hmm. And it was because he was running a Toby Press, which produced like uh, romance and action-adventure mm-hmm. comics. Uh, that that in the course of the hearings were actually labeled as un, unsuitable for for youth, right? They were yes. the they were some of the bad comics. They got the the negative ratings and things like that, and that ultimately drove them out of business. Um, but in the exact same offices, right, mm-hmm. uh, that Toby Press existed, um, was working was a guy named Benton Resnick, mm-hmm. uh, who had been the general manager. Of Toby Press, uh-huh. and you can look in the indicia of a lot of the old Toby comics, and you can see his name right there. And this is how we figured out sort of this connection. Um, it was actually Eddie Campbell who helped me like figure this out a little mm-hmm. bit because mm-hmm. um, he's oh, you know really? he's a top shelf creator, and, and we <laughs> yeah, were sure. at the booth. Well, that's with, a pretty uh, in that's San a pretty Diego in 2012, and I, I started talking to him about, it, and he was like, "Oh, I can help." That's a pretty impressive research assistant, right? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the like, the great Eddie Campbell, guy. author of you know uh, really from Hell kind. and other great and works. So so anyway, um, Resnick once Toby shut down, right? Mm-hmm. They, they apparently reopened as something called Graphic Information Services. And if you look on the letterhead of the original letters from Resnick to Alfred Hassler at the Fellowship, it has the exact same address mm-hmm. that's listed in the <laughs> indicia of Toby Press Comics. Uh-huh. So it's basically like they were operating out of the same facility, doing the same sort of things. Mm-hmm. But rather than produce the comics that were that were getting you know so much negative attention, they were taking on four higher – uh, assignments from nonprofits. I see. Um, Al Cap himself had done some of these. Uh, there's a natural disasters comic out there that you can find. Mm-hmm. Um, but but those are very much signed by Al Cap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and somewhere in the midst of all this, um, Al Cap had sort of come to be the label that they associated with who produced this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't Al Cap himself. It was sort of. Uh, almost a marketing device in some sense because he was so well known. I see. Now, I, my my understanding was that it was uh, from his studio, but it, it, is that even accurate? I, I you know I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, the letters that we've uncovered directly point to Graphic Information Services. I see. And I think from what we've been able to piece together, it was an organization called Fund for the Republic which was partially funded by the Ford Foundation. Mm-hmm. And it was a nonprofit set up to fund uh, social justice activities in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And um, somehow, we haven't been able to piece all of this together, but the Fund for the Republic connected Hassler and the Fellowship mm-hmm. uh, together. And the mm-hmm. fund gave the Fellowship a $5,000 grant to 
create and print this comic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the only hard evidence we have is letters between Hassler and Resnick going over the story treatment. Mm-hmm. And it seems that they worked on it together um, and, and came up – they started working on it in late 56. Mm-hmm. Um, so relatively soon after, the, the bus boycotts were over. I mean this was like almost mm-hmm. immediately they started working on this. Um, and so – uh, Resnick, you know, who was actually listed in David Haydu's uh, oh, right. Tencent, Tencent Plague, Plague. Mm-hmm. as one of those who never worked in the comics industry mm-hmm. again. Yeah. So it was fun to find that, like, these guys were, in fact, still working in comics, albeit a slightly a different, different uh, type of, of comic. Now, was this real? Was this idea to do a essentially a, a social justice comic book, was this embraced by um, – Everyone in the civil rights movement at the time or the people that were close in, did they all think that this was a good idea? Well, that's what's so amazing about this. We found letters from A. Philip Randolph, Martin Luther King, um, and, and, and perhaps most notably Will Campbell, who, if you read March, is actually a character in there because he was working actively in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all encouraging him to do this because they thought it was so important to find a way to reach young people and to Mm -hmm. teach them about nonviolence. In fact, uh, Will Campbell was at the meeting in which SCLC was founded Uh and the next day wrote a letter to Hassler saying, don't tell anybody, but we've just created this organization and I think this organization will be very supportive of the comic book and can utilize it in their own work. And then, of course, SCLC and Dr. King went on to actually write an endorsement that went into some of the comic books and some of the advertising materials uh, when they were soliciting it to the various peace groups. Awesome. So how much hands – so how hands-on – well, obviously they endorsed it. How hands-on was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in the actual production of the book? Dr. King actually read an advanced copy of the script before it went into final production. And then sent a letter to Hassler uh, apologizing for taking so long because it, he, he was delayed <laughs> by the birth of his first son, um, <laughs> offering his own edits, saying, oh, cool. you know, I think this you may need to change this character. It was actually such and such who said this um, and and saying, you know, he was really proud of what they did uh, and that, that he really he really uh, appreciated. It. He thought they did a good job. I love it. Martin Luther King comics editor. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving this. So, um, okay, great. So uh, they're all working on this. Uh, it's they've embraced the notion of a comic book. Uh, um, Martin Luther King is 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 editing it. They've gotten the grant to produce it. Um, you know, what, what was? Do you have an idea? What kind of print run went out, and how did they distribute it? Well, you know, at a time that, uh, in the middle of an anti-comic hysteria. Copy print run. Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? It was 250,000 copies. 250,000 copies? Right. By today's standards, I mean, that's a huge print run. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was, it was to be distributed not just here in the United States, but all around the world. They solicited it in, you know, Peace News and, and various, uh, Christian publications around the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Europe and, and, um, eventually it landed in South Africa and, um, later in Latin America. But, um, w- one of the things that was cool about this process when they did it is that, um, y- you found that, 
the people who were responding to it were not what they expected, right? Mm-hmm. So like the first the first round of mailings they did, they accidentally sent to a group of white ministers who <laughs> who, who like wrote back like these nasty letters like we don't want your comic book, like get this out of here. It's a sort um, of negative but, focus. But then they group. sent it yeah. to uh uh some more southern and like African American churches and schools and things like that. Um and they really embraced it. But it wasn't approved by the comics code, so they couldn't distribute it through traditional means. Uh-huh. And so what happened was you had a group of ministers that we now know as quite famous individuals from the movement who took the comic book on something that they called a reconciliation tour. Um where they traveled all around the south. I think they did eight states in like four or five, maybe six months. Mm-hmm. Um and they would give these nonviolent workshops. And we're talking about Glenn Smiley, mm-hmm. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, yes, well. um, and Jim Lawson, who sure. mm-hmm. you know later went on to to train the the uh, Nashville student movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right away they were getting a response to this. Jim Lawson actually told me a story where he went out to the Midwest in early 1958 mm-hmm. uh, and used the comic book in uh, some nonviolent workshops that directly motivated the students to go and have some of the earliest sit-ins. Now, of course, they didn't get the same media attention that others did later, Mm -hmm. um, but it was almost as if as soon as they had this comic book, you could see the impact on young people Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and having it as something that they could hold in their hands and take with them later um, to really understand not just uh, sort of the, the, I guess, uh, you see these things in sort of the abstract, but when you put it in their, their hands and you show them a story sure. of how it worked, followed by like a descriptive lesson plan, um, it really sunk in and it mm-hmm. became something that motivated them. So was it primarily word of mouth or did the, did the comic book get, get media uh, at the time? It didn't get so much like mainstream media. Yeah. It was uh, even, there was even a media whole smattering att- Even of- media attacking it. It was like Christian publications, peace publications, uh-huh. um, sort of that underground network of uh, activists that were emerging from the early days of the civil rights movement. That was primarily where they received uh, press. But beyond that, you know, it was word of mouth. It was mailings. It was sort of the most uh, grassroots distribution method. Um, far more, I mean, it almost in some weird sense, it was like, the, the predecessor to Kickstarter, you know, I yeah. mean, like this was them just doing like mailings out to people saying, hey, we need you to buy a lot so we can so we can make sure. this print run. And they did. Uh, really amazing. Um, and and but still the the name of the artist and really who wrote it, it's still it, we, we've never been able to nail that down. Well, so the artist is, you know, there's some theories. Uh-huh. Um, I think. There's sort of the idea that it is in the style of Dan Barry. Uh huh. Yes. I would I, love I, to have a conversation with his brother Cy, who mm-hmm. I'm, from what I've been told, is still alive, but mm-hmm. I haven't been able to track him down. Um, because they were working together at that time. Interesting, because it's a really beautifully illustrated comic. Oh, it's beautiful. It's really well done. And and if you look, there's actually a first draft of the cover. Uh, that, that's been found that's a little bit different than the cover that, that you see on the finished version. Uh-huh. Um, and it's funny because it has the story of how that cover changed is very similar to how they changed the Martin Luther King Memorial. Um, oh, re- oh, right. Oh, really? Yeah. The first was cover there a they misquote put together on the cover? <laughs> staring directly at you, right? Uh-huh. 
Um, and it was a little bit more, uh, uh, I don't want to say confrontational, mm. but it was definitely more direct. I see. Um, and, and it's, it's, they had almost the same criticism of the original sculpt of the, uh, Dr. King Memorial, uh, when they, when that was proposed. And it seems like people are like, a little bit afraid to look Dr. <laughs> King in the eye. You know? Yeah, well, you know, if if you don't have the moral backbone, <laughs> it right. might be kind of tough. <laughs> so, uh, really interesting. Um, but uh, one of the things that I also want to ask you about, and and this is where I mean, I have been aware of the comic for many years, though not knowing a lot about it, certainly not knowing the, the facts that you're bringing to light here. But uh, I, I became aware of it again, obviously, during the Arab Spring. Right. But but really, this comic book has traveled around the world. And the oh, Arab Spring sort yeah. of was sort of the latest place that it had, had found a really wonderful and embracing audience. Well, almost immediately after its publication in the United States, it was sent to South Africa. Uh-huh. Um, during the, you know, as they were fighting sure. against the apartheid regime. Mm-hmm. And it was banned there because it was so incendiary. Yeah. Um, yes, yes. Shortly Non-violent. Yes. It was translated <laughs> and actually redrawn, uh, and, uh-huh. and printed in Uruguay and uh-huh. distributed from there. Um, and, and so then it was used also, the Spanish version was used, um, from what, from what I've, what I've heard, it was used in Southern California during the workers' rights movement as well. Ah. But the, the Spanish version's history is still sort of remaining to be, uh, uncovered. Mm-hmm. But then it was also translated into Vietnamese oh, and really? used, uh, in the late 60s, um, as part of the peace movement there in response to the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you sort of fast forward, uh, to what Dalia Zieta did yes. most recently. Um, translating the comic into Arabic and Farsi and distributing it in Egypt uh, all the way up into the days and weeks leading up to the revolution in Tahrir Square. Mm-hmm. So it's really uh, it's really sort of breathtaking the scope uh, of the comic book. And, and to a comic book fan, um, it's it's got to be, uh, you know, inspirational just to see, I mean, what all of us know all the time, even though we love the pure entertainment value of comics, we know that this medium can really do anything. It's it's limited only by the imagination and the skills of the artists involved. Absolutely, uh, I think it's funny if you go back and read some of the the testimony from the comic book hearings. Mm. I, I don't think you can walk away from that with any doubt that comic books can be influential. Mm-hmm. I think really what was being measured at that point was whether that influence was being used. For positive or negative purposes, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I think maybe our definitions have changed um, from then to now. Um, but well, you know, I thought some of your comments you were making uh, when I, I saw you speak at the Small Press Expo, um, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. Uh, I thought you really made some interesting points, um, particularly when you were talking about. Um, the anti-comics hysteria of the 1950s, uh, which was going on at the same time this 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 one this amazing comic book was being created, um, how it affected the people. And I think you were saying, you know, this, you know, it wasn't that this was just a bad thing. This, you know, this took away people's livelihood. It destroyed people's lives. And you you talked about, uh, you know, being able to hold up 
March book one, you know, on the Senate floor or or have it now on Capitol Hill as, you know, kind of coming full circle and in maybe in some small way writing, you know, writing a wrong here. Well, I think, you know, I think what happened for us, it, it was actually the Wednesday before uh, the San Diego Comic-Con started, mm-hmm. right? So it was really like this special moment as we're like getting ready to go to uh, opening night, debut the comic book, sell it for the first time, and show everybody what we've been working on all these years. And Patrick Leahy, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the same committee that held those hearings in the 50s. Ah, holds up a copy of March and says to everybody in the room and all the press, all five of my grandchildren are going to be reading this. (laughs) And, I mean, you want to talk about the distance traveled for comics to go from the the hearing, the the committee that tried to destroy and successfully destroyed many careers Mm -hmm. and many lives to now not just... Uh, you know, not opposing it, but championing a comic book, a graphic novel. Um, it was it was really like one of those unbelievable moments where you're like, okay, we 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 we've we've fixed this. Now, I mean, I know Congress doesn't fix much lately, but <laughs> but maybe sure. this one thing, they're ready to 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 accept that we've moved on, that we've we've come this great distance, and and we're to a place now where. We can all agree that this is a medium of, of beautiful art, of beautiful creativity um, that has the potential to have a real and profound impact in a positive way on, on our youth and on our society. And no, it's really it's really thrilling. And on, on a on a separate note, I think you also you uh, at the Small Press Expo, you're talking a little bit about uh, maybe on a on on a smaller level. It's kind of allowed uh, comics fans on Capitol Hill to come out of the closet. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess um, by doing this, I've sort of become the de facto comic book guy on yeah. the Hill. <laughs> I, I've um, been there, man. I know what you're I, talking about. Go on. <laughs> well, and, and maybe it's you know I think for people it's it's a little bit different than like you know the comic book guy on the Simpsons or something like that. Um, well, we can redefine that character. That's what we're some of us are trying to do anyway. <laughs> right, like it's like we don't have to exist in that stereotype anymore. Um, and people come up to me all the time and they say things like you know I've always been a comics fan, um, and it's it's really great to see you know somebody like John Lewis embracing the medium. And that now also with something like March, they have something that they can show people um, in the political world yeah. that, you know, everybody's sort of taken aback. It's, it's surprising to them. They, they couldn't understand uh, at first why a member of Congress would do that. But then we tell them the story of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story, and we tell them the potential and the impact uh, of what that did and what we could do again. Um, and it's like it's okay to be a comics fan, you know. It's like we're we're finally like legitimate. We're readers, you know. We're not we're not just the geeks or, or the maladjusted. Yeah. Um, we can we can be fans uh, of this beautiful medium. Um, and and I and I people tell me this all the time. Um, it's really it's it's cool, you know. It's great, and and it's surprising the people who do tell you these things. Uh, Jake Tapper, uh, oh, yeah. when we went and did an interview <laughs> at his studio. Uh-huh. You know, kind of really geeked out on it. Oh, it was great! And, I love. It. I mean, there's just there's a ton of staffers on the hill who are fans, but who 
who wouldn't otherwise have said anything about being fans because for so long it did have a, a stigma attached to it. But now, now they can be open about it. I mean, Congressman Lewis even had other members of Congress asking uh, if they could talk to me or talk to him about how he did that because they might want to write one too. Ah. Now, I'm not sure I really want to help any other member particularly do this. I don't think anybody else really has the story to tell. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting to me and it's special that they would make that change and that they would um, – that their views would change so dramatically. Well, it's uh, it's uh, the power of the comics medium, uh, you know, when, when we can break through these barriers. So who knows? Maybe one day there will be a capital Comic-Con. Um, who knows? Anything's possible. We've got to get a, a comic book club together on the Hill. Right? I'm loving and it. You can have Patrick Leahy, Senator Leahy be the chairman, right? You <laughs> there have you John go. Lewis be the, the uh, <laughs> vice chairman, and then, you know, we can get all sorts of things. I think there's something there. Yeah, who never know? Who knows? Might even be some cosplay going on. Anyway, look, (laughs) Andrew, this is a perfect place for us to end. Uh, I've been talking with Andrew Iden, who, uh, when he's not um, operating as what the communications director and press secretary? Oh no, that was during when you were during the campaign. What do you do? What do you do now for John Lewis? uh, Telecom and tech policy. I see. Like social media. All right. So I've got a little bit of policy and a little bit of press, but it's the digital press, and so it's. It's basically, they put all the nerd roles into one. Yeah, I can see it. Well, when you're not doing that, you're the co-author of Congressman John Lewis's New York Times best-selling graphic biography, March Book One, from Top Shelf Publishers. Out now. Go to a store, buy it. It's really a great story. Beautiful uh, artwork by beautiful and gripping artwork by Nate Powell. Um, uh, Andrew, thanks so much for talking. With more to come. Well, thank you for having me, Calvin. It was great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Welcome to More to Come, Peter Epic Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, senior news editor of Publishing Weekly and co-editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Okay, we're back on the floor of Awesome AwesomeCon. And this time I'm talking with Andrew Iden, one of the creative team, including Representative John Lewis and Nate Powell, of uh, uh, March Books 1 through 3. Um, Andrew, welcome back to More to Come. Thank you, Calvin. It's an honor to be with you. Uh, well, this is it's, it's an honor to talk to you. Uh, I mean, we, we uh, interviewed you probably about a year and a half ago, maybe two years. I'm not oh, sure. Man, yeah. um, I guess kind of as you were starting out on this journey to some extent, yeah. um, as a comics writer, in addition to what you do as a, and an assistant to uh, John Lewis. So um, tell us what's been happening lately. I know you've finished Volume 3. I think our, our yeah. listeners would love to know a little bit more about where March is going. Well, March Book 3 is at the print. Uh-huh. So it should be released on August 2nd nationwide. We'll have some advanced copies available at San Diego Comic-Con with the signed yeah, and numbered editions and everything like that. Um, but, you know, March has just grown in ways I never would have expected. The announcement a couple weeks ago that New York City public schools were adopting yes. March mm-hmm. for their 8th grade system-wide mm-hmm. was just just magnificent. And then I got word uh, the other day, they haven't announced it yet, but there's going to be a few more major school systems, even in the congressman's backyard, that are going to be yeah. adopting. And I, yeah. and I think these are dominoes because yeah. I don't see how young people today can understand what's happening in our politics without understanding the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. without understanding the politics that emerged mm-hmm. from that. And so that immediacy is really coming into March and, and it's yes. bringing it to places that 
comics, graphic novels might not have been before, or the civil rights movement might not have been before. Absolutely. Well, what's been great, and we were just talking about this, the ability to connect across generations. So right. often our history to young people seems like it it's something that has nothing to do with them. And this book, in combination with the medium itself, I think, which is so immediate, and of course, <laughs> Representative Lewis, who is connects with people like nobody's business. Um, it really has, I think, reconnected all of us to really one of the most important periods in our history. Right. Well, the comics medium is the perfect vehicle for John Lewis's story, which is the perfect story for our time right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, you know, I think over his lifetime, he was the younger person connecting with an yeah. older generation. Yeah. Mm. And so he understands that sometimes you have to do things a little bit differently. Sometimes you have to take a risk. And sometimes, you know, you got to go all in on something other people might not expect to work. Sure. Um, and I think that's what he did with March. I mean, you see him. He's at San Diego. He's yeah. at Dragon Con in Atlanta. Uh, you know? Yeah. He's going to American Library Association. Yeah. Because he loves these books. And he loves the young people who are responding yeah. to them. Well, um, it's, it's really been a, a, a real phenomenon. I'm glad I was able to kind of see a little bit of it up close and purpose, uh, uh, up, up close and personal. Um, what's it been like here at AwesomeCon? What are you doing here um, uh, at the show? Well, I'm from and you and you're, yeah. and you live here, so you're yeah. not on the road for once. Uh, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> nice. I mean, I got off a plane yesterday, three o'clock, came straight here from uh-huh. the airport. Um, AwesomeCon is one of those shows that's that's been a delight to watch grow. Yeah, because. I went to it just as a fan when it was a bunch of comics dealers in a single right. room with a bunch of boxes of old comics. <laughs> yes. That's and the, I loved it. The classic, right? sure. <laughs> yeah. But now there's so many creators, there's there's so many celebrities, there's, there's so many vendors, um, and so many people from Washington actually coming to it. Mm. I think one of the things I saw with March was people in the Washington community who sort of came out as comics fans. Yeah, yeah. And now you're seeing that <laughs> manifestation yeah. in a comic book show. Yeah. And, like, yeah. the attendance is spectacular. And so Including I, up on Capitol Hill? I think you were telling me one time. Yes. There, there's some closet comic book fans up there that... <laughs> yes, I mean... You kind of gave them the okay to, like, come on out. It's okay, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even members of Congress, you know, they sort of... Yeah, wink, sure. They come up to you and they're... They're, they're asking, I, I tell you, you know, I always say that when, uh, the congressman first asked me, uh, or when I first asked the congressman if he would participate in March, and he said, well, maybe, yeah. which is the nice way of saying no in, in politics. <laughs> I had a Republican member of Congress ask me, you know, would you help me do a graphic novel about my conservative hero, who shall remain nameless? Oh, great. And I, you know, <laughs> I was sitting there, I didn't know what to say, so yeah, I said, yeah. maybe? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I just got out of there as fast as I could. Because, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, af- with with March taking place, and, and you know, you had Patrick yeah. Leahy actually hold it up in a judiciary committee hearing, which is the same committee that they, they held the comic book hearings in in the mid-50s. Oh, even right? more, you know, meaningful right. in a way, without a doubt. Yeah, and so now you're having these powerful people yeah. who have been doing things a certain way for so yeah. long. You know, it's opening doors to their creative capacities. I think yeah. you know they're yeah. seeing that they have to change. So, how what what's what what's your next uh, show? I mean, how have you been able to do all of this? I know you've got obviously you've got a full time job as, as yeah. well. Um, I know you're going to be at San Diego. Yeah. What's what's uh, what's the rest of the summer look like? So the next one we do is we're going to go to the American Library Association. Okay, great. annual convention. Perfect. The NEH, the National Endowment for the Humanity, has sponsored a lecture and is ah. going to be giving out. Thousands of copies to libraries and schools around the country. This is um, great. And we're going to go and talk, and the, the head of the NEH is going to introduce us. Um, and then we're going to go to San Diego after that. Yeah. Um, and then we're going to go on the road. I mean, we're going to have 
I don't know the exact dates yet. Mm -hmm. Top Shelf will be announcing it soon. Sure. But we're going to try and do a full tour during August. If Congress is going to recess, then we're going to get out there and we're going to try to find our way to get into the community and talk about what matters. Well, this is exciting. I mean, I think a a little while ago, I think I was talking with... uh, with Chris Daros about um, uh, the book being adopted by universities. I mean, freshman reading. Uh, I did an interview with with Nate Powell mm-hmm. at Old Westbury in New York, yeah. and there, I mean, it was an amazing event. I mean, the the freshman class was assigned. Uh, I think I think book two. Mm-hmm. Uh, you the students were so energized. Of course, Nate was fabulous, but really, I mean, there must have been three hundred. You know, freshman kids there, and let me tell you, the line to ask questions at the end it was we had to end it virtually. We these kids were so engaged with this book, and so you, and so you can see it, yeah. and I'm sure you see this all the time. Uh, how it connects them with history. Well, I think, first of all, Nate Powell is one of the most exceptional human beings that He's I know. He's a great guy. I mean, he, he has he, the patience of a saint, the talent yeah. of a superstar, and all wrapped up into a single package. Um, and when you see the students who see his art, who read yeah. our words, and they understand the story, you know, I, I, the best part is when they come to me and they say, what can I do? Yeah. I want to do something now. Yeah. And we've seen organizations spring up in places where we've done reading programs. Oh, we have the connection students. with Black Lives Matter. I Absolutely. mean, believe me, the, these kids were just on it. They Absolutely. were just on it. So, and uh, Nate was just fabulous during that. So, um, well, look, uh, uh, thanks for the update. I'm going to let you get back to the table. I see there's people already over there, like, looking at looking at this book as they should be. Um, Andrew, thanks so much for being on More to Come again. Thank you, Calvin. Always a pleasure. All right, we'll talk.